All right, I got Neil Bertrando with me. We're going to review the book Botany in a Day by Thomas J. Elpol. Hi, Paul. Hi, Neil. <laughs> so uh, we're this is we're going to do this in this series where we do like uh, do a bunch of pages, then do a podcast. So there might be like I'm guessing like eight podcasts for this book. Um, and and you and I have done uh, one other book. Uh, together in in this style, and that was that one about a good road lies easy on the land. Right, the book by Bill Zedike. And uh, and you know, there's I've I've done I think two other books, two or three other books using this process, and um, uh, and I've got I've got a particular motivation for this, and that is that a I've owned the book Botany in a Day. Um, for years, I think like seven years now, it was given to me as a gift, and um, uh, and I feel like I really need to have this in my head. But throughout my life, there's been a weird thing where it's like uh, oil and water is me and botany, and for some reason, um, I love to go out and learn about a plant, but then I never learn the scientific name. And and all about the families and the and stuff like that. I, I I just don't. For some reason, it's it's just been something where I haven't been able to digest it. And um, but I need to. It's critically important. I I got it. I mean, I'm I'm frankly I'm embarrassed that I, my botany skills are not better. So um, I so for part of me doing this is going to make it so that I at least get through this book and it's I'm forcing it into my head and by force. The chunk that we read for today's podcast was really easy. It was sweet. I mean, I found I found parts of it rather delicious. Yeah, I agree. That's one of the things that I really uh, find gratifying about this book is that it's very accessible. And it's also almost like it was written for uh, permaculturists, especially if you have not had a lot of experience with botany before, it it rapidly gets you in and gives you a history and an overview, and then it takes a pattern approach, which is something that we teach in permaculture from the start, and it makes it easier to remember things. Yeah. Now, I've, I've had this book recommended to me probably 30 times, and, and, and then, of course, you know, somebody actually gave me a copy. And uh, um, I was going to try and start reviewing it about a year ago, and I emailed the author and said, can I get like a second copy so I can review it with somebody? And the author never got back to me. Um, and so, and then you said one day, I've got that book, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, so, I actually hadn't read through it yet either, so it's a good motivation for me as well. And I have a fair amount of uh, botany experience. Uh, however, this the book has been very informative to me so far, and it, I think it's going to continue to be that way because it's a, not only is it, uh, set up in a pattern method for easy m- memorizing, but it's also grouped with a, u- a utility aspect of uh, herbal uses. Right, right. Now, my my experience on uh, botany is um, probably much lighter than yours. I would guess five times lighter than yours, and, and I'm not really even sure what yours is. Um, but, you know, part of the thing I've been doing, too, is like with the videos that I do that cover a certain species, then um, it's like when you have to edit a video like that, you end up watching the same footage like 40 times as you're editing the video. And so I kind of feel like, you know, now now I know that, um, you know, Mullen is uh, 
Oh, geez, now I'm going to forget it. Thapsis. Thapsis. Oh, no, now I've already forgotten it. <laughs> I know that I've got a video out there about horsetail, and I know that it's equisetum. Yes, that one I know. Well, I'm not positive for, on the uh, on the mullen. Thapsis. That's mullen. Verbascum thapsis. And that's the that's the uh, common mullen. Right. There that's are the furry one. And then there's lots of other mullens. So I'm I I've been learning some of this slowly. Um all right, so before we get into reviewing the book, we've got a couple of quick notes. One is um that uh you are the winner. Uh so so we had a uh a a promotion, an event promotion out at permies.com and um we had two tickets to give away and you won one of the tickets and uh so you're off to Miami, is that right? Yeah, it's a little town homestead south of Miami on the basically the tip of the the Florida peninsula right near the Everglades. So you're going to be in in uh Miami in the middle of winter. <laughs> I'm pretty excited. It's a lot warmer than it is here in Reno. We've been we were down at 0 degrees Fahrenheit last night and that was a uh, cold for me. Ooh, whoa! So, um, uh, yeah, we're we're up here in Montana. We're about the same. It's about it's uh, almost zero right now. Um, but so so you're gonna go, and this is like uh, some sort of uh, financial permaculture thing with Eric Tonesmeyer, right? Yeah, he's he's one of the the course instructors, and the, there's several other people from different backgrounds. Some of them are more directly from a permaculture background, or, and others are, are more directly from a, a financial background. And my understanding of the one of the goals of the the course slash conference or workshop is that uh, to to bring these type of people together to unite them so that more permaculturists can become familiar with what it takes to get financing and funding, and also to link people that are interested in financing uh, regenerative earth practices with people that are interested in implementing them. So it's, it's both a, a connection-driven workshop and then also uh, an information and, and practical about how to put together things like a business plan so that we can actually speak the language of the business people and financiers. So I know that they asked me to come down and be one of the instructors, and we couldn't. Uh, I, I just I just couldn't take that amount of time off, and, and so I didn't. Uh, I, I declined. And I said, maybe, maybe when you do it a year from now. Um, but I, I looked at the list of instructors, and I saw Jude Hobbs, and I've never met Jude Hobbs, but I've heard lots of lovely things about Jude Hobbs, and so I, I, one of these days I really want to meet Jude Hobbs. Yeah, I have not met her either. I'm, I'm excited to meet her and, and to meet Eric. I've spoken with Eric on the phone a couple of times. Um, I'm trying to get him to come out to Reno also this year. Yeah, Eric, we've done uh, at least one book promotion with him, and he was the 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 um, pseudo author when we did the promotion for the event we always seem to have somebody be the the person answering questions that week at permies so um, but Eric's been great when we've had him out he's uh, um, been a prolific poster and and uh, helping a lot of people so and, all right so then that's and then and then you've got a you're going to be teaching a PDC this is in fact how many PDCs have you taught so far um, I've taught or co-taught uh, three complete PDCs, and then I've also uh, been a guest instructor in uh, three other ones. So I've been, I've participated as a, an instructor role in a total of six, so this will be my seventh. Okay. And that, that the dates for that will be in March, and it, it's, uh, <clears throat> we're billing it as an alternative spring break, and so we're going to do it 
<laughs> one weekend, the March 9th and 10th, and that'll be the introduction weekend. And then uh, the following week, um, it starts on the 16th, and it goes through the 24th. Okay. And that's going to be in Reno. That's correct. And yes, it's, it's in Reno. And, and uh, we're setting it up so that we do have spaces for people who, from out of town to come and stay. And then we're also hoping to get a, a lot of people from more locally, uh, either Reno or, or the Carson City area or Fallon, some, somewhere nearby where they can commute. Uh, and so we have a different uh, tier of pricing. Uh, for people that are local, we're charging $1,000 for the whole thing, and that includes meals every day. And then for people that need lodging, that, that will be an additional $300, so $1,300. Wow, that that seems really cheap to me. Um, and so uh, uh, the style of, uh, of, of PDC, I mean, it's going to be um, – I mean, sometimes people are disappointed when they go to a PDC, and and it's like uh, uh, they it's like what happens there is not their uh, their cup of tea. I think sometimes you go to a PDC, and there'll be a lot of people um, singing songs, and then other other times you go to a PDC. I mean, I've been to PDCs where it's like there's there's no singing song stuff, but like every night there's a campfire and people brought their instruments and they're singing songs. But it's like not the same, right? And so I think we'll be uh, more along the second rung of what you've mentioned. And I'm I'm a fan of songs if they're, for example, a mnemonic device. Like if it helps me to remember something that otherwise I have a real difficult time remembering. And right. I'm also a fan of them as a recreational um, component of a culture. And so th- those two things I think are are of high value. And uh, I just think that there's so much information to cover in a PDC in a short period of time that. Um, I, I don't focus on on that sort of thing, and that there's time in the evenings for the people that are staying, or even people that are local if they want to come and hang out with the people that are that are staying, you know, for having the campfire song type of uh, scenario, and so that that can be part of the creative outlet of of, of people's uh, right. preference at that time. But it's not something that needs that I'm planning on incorporating into the course directly. Um, I, and then I just like the idea that there's more of this kind of thing where it's like, no, no, we're going to be like a bunch of professionals getting together to do this, as opposed to like, um, you know, the, when I took a P, when I took the PDC, I had a wonderful time, and it was something where every morning there was songs, and and uh, um, but it, and it was like part of the the package. If you wanted to find out what's going on that day, then that was part of what happened, and I. And I enjoyed being there, but I didn't enjoy singing the songs. I, I for some reason I can't remember the words. I don't know what it is, but um, I still had a wonderful, wonderful time. And I just like the idea that there's like like we have a way of differentiating, and and that uh, there can be PDCs that are more like that, where there's a lot of the uh, the songs and stuff, and then there's other PDCs where it's more like. Not that it's people that are more there for professional stuff, and I have no. In the past, we've gone with purple and brown. Some are purple and brown. <laughs> well, I hope um, that mine's um, more blue and green <laughs> than purple or brown. But I'm definitely interested in the brown, especially if it's uh, soil carbon. That's what I think. That's what it is. Is like the brown is is representing dirt, soil, farming. You know. Uh, whereas the purple is more like uh, um, 
singing, uh, ecstatic dance, uh, yoga, um, drumming, uh, things like that. So um, I, I, I don't know. There's events where it's like if they're very like the whole event. It'll be a permaculture convergence, but the event is extremely purple. And then there's other ones where it's a permaculture convergence, and it's a very technical conference. It's very brown. And, and so if some cranky farmer showed up, I think he would learn a lot about permaculture. Whereas if a cranky farmer showed up to a purple event, he'd be like, bunch of damn hippies, I'm out of here. And and so um, I, I'm far more in favor of something that's rather brown. So I am as well. And that, that's what I try to gear my... Uh, presentations and courses and experiential learning uh, events towards, and yeah. uh, I will have I will be having Owen as a guest instructor. Uh, oh, there you go. Now that's Brown. <laughs> yeah. So so Owen Owen Hablitzel is definitely a highly technical and uh, skilled permaculturist um, in my experience, and, yeah. and I also uh, right now the group I'm working with is a, a not for profit the Urban Roots Garden Classrooms, and they work directly with schools, and they're developing a a new program um, called FarmCorps, which is kind of like AmeriCorps. It will be actually a, a, a branch of AmeriCorps, and they're looking to work directly with the University of Nevada. And so part of our course will be taking place at the University of Nevada at their one of their field uh, agricultural field stations, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll be looking at doing design uh, practices for that. So it will be much more geared towards you know, farming as uh, an occupation and also, uh, I'm hoping that we'll be able to line up some of the the professors from, uh, for example, the rangeland ecology department to come out and, and give some presentations that are, you know, much more uh, specifically technical and scientifically backed. Uh, because I, I feel like that's that permaculture as a design science um, has some responsibility to reach out to the scientists, especially if they're doing uh, good large-scale regenerative work with ecologies and with people. Oh, good. I, yeah, I like that too. I, I like when we get a crossover into the uh, the more academic areas, um, which which kind of leads us back to botany in a day. But you've got one more event on my list that's coming up. I do. Uh, I will be up ne- in your area, actually, not directly, but uh, in near Bozeman in a little town called Wilsall. And uh, Owen Havlitzel and I will be co-teaching a keyline course, and then just leading up to that, Owen we'll be teaching a holistic management course. And so that that's in June. And the holistic management course is a two-day course, and that'll be June 5th and 6th. And then the key line course will be a three-day course, and that's June 7th through 9th. Okay. All right. And that, that's in Wilsall, Montana. And for both of those courses, um, we'll put some threads up on, on permies to get people uh, some more information, and they can make direct inquiries, and we can link them to the host and that sort of thing. Cool. Cool. We have a, a new forum, by the way, um, uh, called Greening the Desert. I don't know if you saw that. I have not yet. Uh, so, you know, when we start talking about Owen, you know, and, and, and the work that Owen's doing, and we talk about holistic management, and, uh, and, and then we also talk about how you're in Reno. And, and let's not forget that, uh, what did we call you last time? The Desert Rat? Yes, we did <laughs> go with the Desert Rat. <laughs> so... So it's like, uh, you know, we got Greening the Desert now. And so uh, um, it would be good to get some of this stuff in the Greening the Desert forum. But, yeah, um, we'll get it up on Permies, maybe in the Rockies forum or the uh, 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 Southwest USA um, uh, forum, you know, region, the regional forums. 
So, all right, ready to get into this? I, I am. Okay. Botany in a day. Um, I want to start off by saying that um, uh, I've, while I've been embarrassed at my lack of botanical knowledge, um, I have always been awestruck by the greats that I've met where it's like they really, really, really know this stuff. And so um, uh, I would have to say, uh, for, at the top of the list would be Skeeter, you know, Michael Polarski. Um, when he just starts rattling off these different species and, you know, he, he's always got their scientific name, his knowledge is just so phenomenally immense. And and it's always, I'm always super impressed. Like, yeah, I, 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 I wish I had that knowledge. <laughs> it's it's so it's so excellent and so beautiful, and uh, and then of course the Bullock brothers. I don't have you done anything with the Bullock brothers? I, I took a course there, a teacher training course there. So I have been to their site. I spent about a week there, but that's the the extent of my experience with them. So whenever I hear Doug Bullock speak, or even Dave Bainline, then then it's like uh, the knowledge is amazing. And and then of course Helen Atow. Um, always seems to be dancing circles around me with her knowledge of botany and um, throwing out the species names, and she's always very forgiving when I need to go with the common names. And and then, of course, that means that my knowledge is limited. Uh, and so uh, this has been something I've needed to do for a long time. So, I, so I'm glad that we're getting started on this. Uh, the first note that I've got about this book is that this guy has lived and has always lived and still lives in Montana. Yeah, I noticed that too. That was pretty exciting. Yeah, so this is this is so there's you know a lot of focus on uh, stuff that grows well in Montana. This is it's his primary area. So yay, perfect book for me. Mm-hmm. And, and <laughs> not so much for you. Any anyone <laughs> in the Intermountain West really in you know the kind of arid western high elevation United States with uh, true winters. It should be pretty practical and, and applicable. He mentions at the beginning of the book about like there's a lot of alignment with um, England. A lot of the stuff that does well here does does well in England. Definitely. Um, and, and this is the fifth edition, and he's saying that he's been adding so that he gets covers more of North America also. Right. So let's see. Uh, this field guide is designed to give the reader the big picture of botany and medicinal plant properties. It deals more with patterns among related plants than with the details of specific plants. Because the style of the book is broad, the coverage is also broad. Um so it's like when I make my little videos, then then I'm of course talking about a specific species, and I currently have video footage for 140 different species of plants, and I need to start cranking these out. I always perpetually feel like, no, I need just a little bit more for that plant before putting the video out, and uh, I, I got to be less picky. <laughs> so um, I do think it's it's worth giving a little plug for the author because he has written several books, not just Botany in a Day. And uh, he also runs a website where you can go. It's kind of a, an addendum to Botany in a Day. And so uh, Thomas J. Elpel, his uh, book site is www.hopspress.com. And then his botanical website is www.wildflowers-and-weeds.com. 
wildflowersandweeds.com. That's wildflowersandweeds.com. What's this hollowtop.com that's on the back of the book? Because he's a self-pub, right? I think so. I, I, I thought Hops Press was his uh, his press. I don't see the hollowtop.com. That very back of the book on mine, hollowtop.com. Maybe mine's newer than yours. I have the fifth edition. What have I got? I have the fourth edition. Yours is newer than mine. Aha. Uh-huh. Ha-ha! <laughs> <laughs> well, I have Hops All Press. Right. As, as I, I see that he's got this book, and maybe it, uh, he calls it Living Homes, but it, it looks like it's you know basically he's advocating slip form. Yes. So cement, that, that's, cement and rock. That's my understanding with the the Homes book that he has is it's mostly slip form, and he gives examples of other options. And then often the way that that you get them uh, to become living is that you uh, integrate the home with the ecology like we often do in permaculture you know where you have you kind of invite some of the plants inside you have maybe a an attached greenhouse you have uh, shade structures and arbors that are populated by plants which help to regulate the the sunlight and the heat transfer and and the wind and that sort of thing well i know when i was trying to contact him i looked at his web page and i saw a whole bunch of dvds and i kind of thought you know i wouldn't i wouldn't mind getting this stack of dvds and then watching them and doing podcast reviews of each DVD. But at the same time, it's kind of like, yeah, I'm not going to pay, you know, it was like 30 bucks a DVD. And I'm kind of thinking like, uh, I mean, I haven't heard if they're good. And and I kind of am feeling like, you know, 30 bucks. I don't know, is it worth 30 bucks? Uh, So, you know, when I wrote to him, it's like, you know, I could review DVDs too, but I never heard back, so we'll see. All right. Yeah, well, maybe he'll get a bunch of traffic on his site from this podcast, and uh, it will stimulate his interest. Yeah, and then he'll send he'll send uh, me and you a stack of DVDs. Yeah. <laughs> and we could do, do reviews of the DVD. That's right. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Uh, I'm uh, I'm looking at he's got a page start here, and I tried to read it, and I got to admit that um, I I thought there was some interesting information here, but I was getting a little confused about. Well, don't we just start at the beginning of the book and read through? Um, I, I don't know, uh, but I did. I did find one uh, interesting tidbit on that page, and that is: many plant guides are organized alphabetically or by the color of the flower. These books can ultimately hinder your progress in learning plants. Look for books that are organized according to families. At the very least, make sure the book includes the family name with each plant. A few of my favorite field guides are available through the website, hollowtop.com. Right, and I think that's important to to just kind of streamline information and and stick with something that fits the same pattern. And he gives even a, a little bit later a picture and title of a book. It's a golden field guide, Wildflowers of North America. It's organized based on families, uh, and that, you know, would be for wildflowers. And you're not necessarily going to find your exact plant in there, but if you use his technique, then at least you can get down to the family level and maybe a little closer to the genus or something. Um, but he, I think it's very practical. And also, from a permaculture perspective, one of the things that uh, that's interesting about families that, is that they often have a lot of functional similarities. And uh, even, for example, the legume family primarily every plant in there is a nitrogen fixer, whether it's a tree or an herbaceous uh, annual plant. So if you understand family patterns, then you can understand a lot of functional uh, relationships. And Eric Tonsmeyer goes so far as to say that 
uh, we should design in what he calls omega-level diversity, which is basically family-level diversity into our uh, agro-ecosystems so that we can get the services of all the different functions of the natural plants and also um, eliminate a lot of the disease issues because similar families often share similar disease uh, and insect problems. Right. Uh, so, and, and this is the thing where, um, and in fact, when I did my master gardener training um, 17 years ago or whatever, then there was one day where um, there was a woman who came in and, and it was basically berating us and saying, if you don't learn these things, then you can't be a master gardener. And in the meantime, Helen was kind of like, no, you, you can, you're, you're totally going to be a master gardener without having to memorize every species you know, scientific name kind of a thing. So, uh, um, so that was one of the ways where I, I seem to have gotten where I've gotten without having learned all of this stuff. But yeah, the, and in fact, um, so I, I think I've marked off some parts to share that that say those exact things. But um, and I mean, but this is, in my opinion, it's kind of the family level uh, identification and learning leads us on a path towards being practical generalists as permaculturists, and then we can continue to specialize within that, but at least we're at the practical level where we can start applying right away and using the information and not being hindered by too much, uh, too many little details, but at least we have applicable skill sets, which is something I right. really appreciate. Yeah, I think one of the things I marked off was something about everything that's in this particular family or genus um, has these properties to it, like like you were saying with nitrogen fixation, but it was like saying uh, something about, uh, now I can't remember what it said, something about it being astringent. And and so it's like, and that means that the, the leaves are going to hold on to things more than other plants do. But it also, if you use it medicinally, it tends to be an astringent and it helps you with these collection of things. Some of them, they, they all pretty much do the same thing. Some of them might do it better than others, but it's, you know, way better than the other species that don't do it at all. Right. Yeah, exactly. So you start noticing these patterns and these similarities, and then it becomes easier. And and so then, uh, and easier, that's what I'm, I'm into easier. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and practical. You know, you can, you, you can, because Thomas is coming from a, uh, you know, kind of like a wilderness survival type of background also. So he's looking right. at, well, if we're out there, and even if we don't know what it is, if we can at least get an idea of, oh, this one has the potential to be poisonous, and this one has, does not, and it has these properties, you know, then we can start using things in, in a survival type of scenario also, or just in a, you know, a farming type of scenario when we're designing polycultures. Which ones have tap roots? Exactly. Which ones don't? Yeah. 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 <clears throat> All right. Um, from the top of my page four... He starts talking about, you know, why do we give it, and he says Latin names. <clears throat> and I've had some people tell me that, no, it's not the Latin names, it's the scientific name. Because most of them are Latin, but some of them are not Latin at all. They're, they're scientific. They're, they're named after somebody or, um, you know, there's some other way. But the, the names are still universal. And the, the, these plant names are also um, something that's designed to uh, be the same in every language. 
So like English, German, Spanish, French, Italian, they, they, all the names are the same. Latin, so it says, Latin names of plants may seem intimidating at first, but do not fear them. They are true allies in learning about plants. Consider that a plant normally has only one Latin name, but it may have dozens of common names. Further, a common name may be used for several different and totally unrelated plants. For instance, several plants are called loosestrife. Yet, without the Latin name, you can never know exactly which plant you're talking about. Um, a little further down, he talks about how the Latin names are standardized all over the world. So now, for me, part of the advantage, part of the reason why I need to do this today uh, and record this podcast and get this and get us going with this book is because Sep's a coming. Sep will be here. Right. Sep will be back. I mean, so he was here uh, last May. And now he's going to be back in March and April of 2013. Um, and and so then this is one way to be able to, like, you, you can talk about a plant is if you know the scientific name for the plant. Right. And so that he kept trying to communicate with me by throwing out these names, and I don't know them. <laughs> so it's like, this is awkward. <laughs> I think my skirts are showing. <laughs> And yeah, that, I found that that was actually a really useful in in Montana uh, last last May was knowing the scientific names, and then you know I would ask about a plant, and he would almost immediately know what I was talking about, or we'd bring up different types of plants, and I could say the scientific name of one, and he'd be he'd be oh well this we can use for that, you know, so it just sped things up as far as communication goes, and it it's nice to have something that's standard that you can talk with someone from anywhere. So I, I'm, I'm also making a feeble attempt to learn a little bit of German. Uh, <laughs> when he and I, when when he and I were uh, were there at at uh, Montana, we had a lot of time where it was just him and I together. Um, we're waiting for a translator to show up, kind of a thing. And so I was trying to make this video of dandelions, and and so um, I and one of the things I was doing is I'd, I would have somebody hold a dandelion seed head say something profound about dandelions and then blow the seeds off of it. And so basically it would say, I don't fear dandelions. Um, and so we're standing there and there's all these dandelion seed heads there and I've got my camera. And so I, I try to motion to him and explain in English, which of course he doesn't understand that, you know, I want him to blow the seed head. And so I pick a dandelion seed head and have him hold it. And then I get out my video camera and I turn it on and I say, okay, go ahead and blow the seed head. You know, and I'm trying to demonstrate, and instead he kind of looks into the camera, and then he eats it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's like okay, yeah, we're not communicating, and it's still awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Sep's going to be here. Uh, we've got all kinds of stuff at Permies about Sep's uh, return to the United States, and he started up some sort of. Uh, Holzer permaculture certification thing, uh, and uh, so people can can. Uh, it's a totally different from doing a PDC. Um, yeah, and exactly. It's a different certification. It's a different group of people. It's being spearheaded by uh, some of his students from Austria, and, uh -huh. and they're collaborating with a group uh, from North America. And several several of us were at the course in 
Montana and also at the course in Minnesota last year where he was not. And then also, uh, the course in Detroit where he was in, in May. Um, they're, they're also participating. So the locations where he'll be visiting will be, uh, coastal California, uh, near Bozeman, Montana, uh, near Duluth, Minnesota, and then in Detroit, Michigan. Cool. Well, I, I know I'm going to the Bozeman one. There was uh, there was talk about uh, somehow getting me to come to a couple of the other ones, but it was kind of like um, I'm not sure if, if we'll be able to get that to work out or not. Um, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see how things go. <laughs> but if nothing else, we've got tons of information on it out at permies.com. And so uh, for those that are interested in that kind of thing, I, but I imagine I'm, last I heard the tickets were selling really fast. And so if you're hearing this podcast, you might want to look into it today and not tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I, I think um, most of them have sold, filled at least half the spots and the advertising has just started. Yeah, yeah. Um, here, here's an important tidbit out of the book. Nobody really cares how you pronounce the words... So just stumble through them however you can. <laughs> That's now my favorite part in the whole book. <laughs> so we, we've now been given uh, license to stumble through all the words we want. Yeah, just just make it up. Just make the best of it. And uh, you know, there's going to be some people that are going to be anal and say, no, it's not pronounced that way. But uh, hey, says right here, doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter. I imagine eventually you start to you know say it like everybody else. But um, you can you can uh, be a clodhopper, no problem. Yes, I like that. Me too. License to be a doofus. And just get get started. Don't be afraid. Just start doing it and and be practical and apply. Every plant has a unique name in Latin, and the name is always in two parts. For example, sweet Sicily, a local plant with a potent anise-like flavor, is called. Osmorphiza occidentalis. There, see, I, I, I'm exercising the new rule already. Yeah, I think it's um, osmoriza. Osmoriza, yeah, okay. And riza meaning root, and osmo might mean water, so it might be water root. Um, so that that's okay. one of the great things about a lot of the Latin names is they tell you things about the plants. They actually describe them. Um, In- you know what what it's what it might have morphologically, and then occidentalis probably means Western United States, so that's where it grows uh, native. A lot of times they'll be telling you where they grow or what they look like a little bit, and then many times it'll be uh, the name of a person who, who discovered and classified it. The first name is the genus name. The second part is the species name. So and then um you know it starts to break down on this whole thing of like uh um you know the 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 genus belongs inside of the family which belongs in the order etc and but it seems like normally when you refer to plant you just use the genus and the species normally i mean he talks about times when you might you know abbreviate a little bit like everything that's in the genus species is usually done this way or you know stuff stuff like that uh he's got he's got all the shortcuts i mean you know, we're just we're just browsing through the book here. We're not really uh, <clears throat> we we cannot convey the entire book in a podcast. 
Right. And, I mean, if you want to get the whole book, then uh, the, you should support the author. You put a lot That's of work right. into Go it. Go buy the book. Go buy the book. And I think we'll, we have a link to this book from permies.com. So we, we've, got a, we've got a thread that's just about this book. And then if you buy the book through the link, then Permies gets like a buck. And, and then, of course, you know, yeah, then buy the book and the author gets paid too. But I think if you go to the author's websites, you probably cut, you probably cut Permies out of the action, but the author gets more. So if you love the author and you don't particularly care for me, you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice that there's many options. Yes, yes, and, and we will make those. We, we, I think we're really good at Permeas about making all the links, so that way you know you can buy it directly from the author, and the author gets more money. Um, you know, so we're we're you know as much as getting money for our empire is lovely, we're more about like uh, supporting it in all the different ways. All right. <clears throat> so something that I think is just interested from interesting from the the classification side of things is that this is. Uh, what I would call a, a nested hierarchy. So every single um, species has is nested within a genus, which is nested within a family, nested within an order, and every level of the hierarchy has some specific um, connotation. Uh, like we'll, we'll learn more about it, but flowering plants, for example, are a division. They're at the highest um, highest classification level and as we get further down then we'll get into um, dicotyledons or monocotyledons and, and so on and so forth but each of those will give us some information about the plant and its functionality um, and the, the family level we'll find is the one where it's, we have the most useful suite of divisions that, that allow us to get really practical really quickly with, with plant use and identification well, I think with this whole series of podcasts, I mean, we're going to we're going to start getting into a lot of details about a lot of plants. So, I mean, so, you know, like I imagine we're probably going to do about 8 podcasts to cover this book. And so like on podcast number 5, maybe we'll talk about legumes. Right. Would be a guess. You know, and and so um we're going to go into a lot of details about that, but but yeah, um, and then with each level of breaking things down, it, like we talked about before, it kind of reveals something about the plants that are in that gob. Um, so, and, and if, okay, so now I've got I've marked off a part to read that's kind of about that. So, if a family is especially large, or if its members sufficiently distinct from one another, then there may also be subfamilies and tribes within the family. For example, alfalfa belongs to the clover tribe of the pea subfamily within the pea family. This indicates that alfalfa is slightly more related to clover than it is to soybeans, which are of the bean tribe, also within the pea subfamily and the pea family. Fortunately, most families are not grouped this way. So most families are just a family. There is no subfamily. There is no tribe. A higher level of classification above the species, genus, and family is the order. For example, the plants of the pea family and the rose family are very different from each other. Yet, there is a remote pattern of similarity, at least to botanists. Therefore, both of these families, plus the stone crop, gooseberry, and saxifrage 
families all belong to the Rose Order. Did I say that right? Saxifrage? Does that sound right? Yeah, I think so. Or saxifrage, saxifrage. I'm I'm sure that at different in different dialects people pronounce it differently. <laughs> so now, uh, so then it, it, it's, he's got a lot of charts here to help you understand how these things are um, nested, as you say. Um, and he's, he's got a few places where he's kind of broken down some plants so you can get a better idea of this. Um, and then he goes into the evolution of plants. Do you have anything else to say about the, the plant names and classification before I go into the evolution of plants? Um, I'm just going to go back to that uh, nested hierarchy concept, and uh, I just want to say that that's a concept that's used also in ecology to look at uh, how organisms are organized. For example, uh, when you have, uh, organ- you have cells, which have organelles inside of them. The cells are part of tissues that form into organs, which are parts of organisms, and then populations and communities and whole ecosystems. Those are also nested hierarchies. So it's a it's a useful organizational tool uh, for biology in general when we're trying to, to look at it from a pattern perspective. And that's the perspective that um, Howard and Eugene Odom present in their uh, principles of ecology book which is i think one of the one of the texts that's actually referenced by bill mollison and uh, was very influential in david holmgren's uh, development of the permaculture con- concept so i feel like it's worth mentioning at least so as you're saying that i'm kind of thinking like oh yeah and botany is kind of like covering one of these branches and at the same time i'm thinking <clears throat> when we start breaking down the word botany we have like bot which makes me think of robot yeah <laughs> So it's, but it's not about robots at all. <laughs> um, there must be some kind of history to that word "bot" that's like I don't, I don't understand it yet. I don't either. Maybe that, that's something we can look up for a, a future podcast on botany in a day. <laughs> Robotany in a day. <laughs> How do we? Classify uh, the next section. <laughs> the next section is evolution of plants. I didn't mark up very much out of this section. I, I did find a few bits that I thought were really amazing. The first one is is 99.9% of everything that ever lived is now extinct. Right. And everything that is now alive will go extinct. The ultimate fate of every species is extinction. That's just profound. It's just Enormous. Um, I didn't know. I, I kind of figured like, uh, you know, at least half of the stuff that's here now has been around for like such an enormously long time. But but apparently not. Um, it's been around a long time, but long time is relative. <laughs> right. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> are you talking so 10,000 years? Or are you talking 10 million? And even that's kind of small in the ultimate scale. Yeah, yeah, and and so he does. He's got a scale here, and he starts talking about when these things started showing up, and uh, you know, so we're talking about billions of years, and uh, um, wow, wow. Um, <clears throat> so um, uh, then, then okay. So for the uh, the evolution of plants today, ninety percent of all plants associate with fungus in the soil. And 80% could not survive without their fungal partners. In many cases, the fungus lives in the core of the plant. Some simple plants, like the club mosses, 
lack a complete vascular system for circulating water and nutrients, but their fungal partners live inside the stems and provide that function. Right. So now, I mean, does botany... Botany does not include funguses, does it? No, fungus are a, a distinct kingdom from plants. So botany is not the study of fungus. However, it's directly linked to it because pretty much all plants associate with fungus in some sort of symbiotic relationship. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's permaculture 101 right there is uh, symbiosis and cooperation. And then, of course, you know, when you, when you study Michael Pollan's book, The Botany of Desire, I, I think that's got a whole thing like, like uh, it's fascinating how we're not using plants like we think we are. Actually, the plants are using us. Yeah, there's definitely some interesting layers there. <laughs> Which ah, is, uh, yeah. I, I think I like to focus on the cooperative relationships that we can uh, opportunize on and also develop and rather, rather than potential, like, uh, just utilitarianism or competition-driven relationships of one species using another. I think that um, the woman Lynn Margulis uh, really pioneered this idea of symbiosis being the driving force or cooperation being the driving force of evolution. And uh, I think it's a very powerful tool, if we can focus on it, to use in permaculture when we're trying to accelerate evolution, is to look at cooperation and how can we create cooperative partnerships which i think is an enormous part of like uh, polyculture and guilds in the use of permaculture but but it even you know pervades into a lot of different permaculture stuff of stacking functions definitely so you know you'll do some simple thing and it actually ends up doing four different things for you and and so it's kind of like yeah so this and then plus there's also a symbiosis not only between plants and fungi but there's also symbiosis between fungi plants and animals and birds um, yeah. where, uh, you know, like, oh, in order for this seed to get spread around, it first must take a ride through the innards of a bird. Or this particular seed must first go through a, ri a ride through the innards of some other critter. Um, or the thing about <clears throat> uh, certain funguses, in order to get spread around, they must first go for a ride through the innards of a vole. Right, and then there's the symbiosis between the plants and the bacteria, which make certain nutrients available in the soil and protect their roots, and the symbiosis even between some plants and something that's not living, like fire, where the plants require the fire to open up the seed pods so that they can germinate and grow. And so there's lots of potential benefits, and also that allows us to start optimizing our systems to match with the natural ecosystems when we start to understand some of those relationships. So um, I've got. I mean, it gets it gets even more awesome than this. But uh, okay. So next up, I've got. Although the surface of the planet is one third land and two thirds water, the land area produces a whopping fifty times as much biomass, organic matter, as the oceans. Which up until the moment that I read that, I thought it was the opposite. Like somehow the oceans produce so much more of everything than the land does. Yeah, but, and and that's there's some caveats there I think um, because the ocean is so big. Like he he's saying here that a lot of the ocean is a is a desert basically, um, and I think that the the reason that 
a lot of times we have the the reverse type of um, understanding is that nearshore environments where the sunlight is accessible and often where there's upwellings, the ocean is very productive. And that's where you find, like, the coral reefs and the kelp forests and those sorts of things. Edge. Right, exactly. <laughs> okay, all right. <clears throat> then, go ahead. Oh, just uh, that that edge comment actually brought me to a, a point that I really liked where um, it's talking about the, just the evolution in general and how uh, that there's no real... Um, gradual changes in the fossil record they're always kind of dramatic and punctuated and he says that the reason for this scientists believe is that new species evolve on the margin or the edge so if we're trying to accelerate succession and evolution and we create lots of edges and margins then we create lots of opportunities for new species to evolve not just come in and occupy a niche and provide us with more opportunities but actually drive evolution a lot of a lot of the comments that he has in here is about mutation, right? And that you know some kind of crazy mutation will show up and it'll be just bizarre, and then um, you know most of those will end up being a, a fail; they won't work. But then it's that one out of a thousand that pops up, and it's like uh, this particular mutation actually has strengths, and it goes off into this other crazy space. Yeah. And, and that so, he talks about that is like when herbivores evolved, suddenly anything that was uh, defenseless was in trouble. And so uh, the things that, you know, had some sort of fluke where they, you know, had maybe some spines or some produced some chemical that was a little toxic, maybe to themselves also, um, but also to other organisms. Suddenly it says nature, uh, suddenly evolution favored nature's mistakes and mutants. Yeah. <laughs> the weirdos. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So um, then it goes into lichens. And, and this is something that I've heard Skeeter say several times, but it was something that's always been sitting funny with me, but then this book just makes it so clear. Please note that lichens evolved independently from other plants as an association between fungus and algae. The algae is a layer of single-celled plants near the surface, just below a gelatinized layer of fungal hyphae. The algae captures nutrients that land on its surface and provides energy through photosynthesis, while the fungus absorbs moisture and provides a protective structure for the algae. These are otherwise independent organisms capable of surviving without each other, and they only form lichens when both are present. Lichens were historically included in the plant kingdom, but modern botanists have moved them to the fungus kingdom. I believe they do not properly belong in either and should be separated into their own group. This is something, so I've heard it mentioned before that, that lichens are not a fungus and they're not a plant and that they're actually a hybrid between algae and, and fungus. And, and it's like, I just, it's like, what? Right, and something to remember is a lot of algae are not plants, they're photosynthetic bacteria. 
<laughs> this gets crazier. Life is like that. And, and lichens then are an emergent property of the relationship between the algae and the fungus. So that that's something that we see a lot in nature, too, is that when you start to have relationships, you get emergent properties that are totally different and potentially totally unexpected from those cooperative symbiotic relationships. The varied and often bright colors of the lichens come from acid crystals stored in their tissues. The acid is used to etch holes in wood, rock, buildings, and other surfaces to give the lichen something to grab onto. Thread-like appendages are then inserted to anchor the lichens. Most of the so-called mosses, especially those found in trees, are actually lichens. True mosses are distinctively green like other plants. I just, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I, would, I would love to just go over a, a big coffee table picture book of lichens. Yeah, they're really beautiful and phenomenally colorful. And uh, one of the, the functions of lichens that I think is of high value uh, that is um, maybe lesser known is that they truly are uh, some of the organisms that generate soil. They generate the mineral component of soil by weathering, biological weathering and accelerating chemical weathering of rocks. So without them, we would have probably much few, much less soil out there. But that's probably the fungal part right, that, of the lichen doing that. That's that acid uh, etching so that they can have a, uh, something to grab. And that when the acid etches, it also you know scratches a little bit of uh, minute particles off of the rock. So now earlier when we had that part where it was talking about the fungus being like actually inside of some plants, then um, I was kind of thinking about uh, endophytes inside of tall fescue. So, like, tall fescue is, is something, you know, is a, a type of grass, and it's often, you know, used for pastures because it's, it's got amazingly drought-resistant deep roots. And, uh, but, but it's like the endophyte um, can make certain cattle sick. Um, a certain, well, you know, I, I would say certain ruminants, possibly even all ruminants sick. So then they, uh, they came out with a variety of tall fescue that was endophyte-free, so it had no fungus living inside of it, but that fescue always did really lame. And then, and then they came out with one um, that was um, uh, friendly to the um, ruminants, ruminant-friendly uh, endophyte tall fescue. So they, they, you know, the, the fungus is back, but somehow it's like the, uh, the the ruminants can digest it without getting sick or something. So um, an interesting thing about the funguses living inside of the plants, that's just one for a plant. But, but lichens, that's a whole other deal. Definitely. Then we go into spore plants. And this, this is like sharing something about spore stuff I never knew. So basically, um, <clears throat> uh, they, they talk a little bit about what is a spore, and it's basically like, I'm going to take my sex stuff and drop it on the ground. In fact, he makes the, the, um, the analogy 
of it's like fish that spawn. They put their eggs down, and then uh, the male fish comes along and puts sperm all over it. And and then um, you know, good luck, eggs. You're on your own. And, uh, uh, and so then things evolve from there, as opposed to a live birth system where it's like we're going to take our eggs and sperm and mix them together inside of a creature, and then out pops a living creature. Right. And so they said, basically, that's kind of like you know the spores are where you're like tossing your eggs and your sperms out in the wild, and it's like good luck, eggs and sperms, you're on your own. Yeah. And as opposed to like seeds are going to be like. Um, we're going to grow a little thing inside of us, and once we kind of got it going, then we're going to give birth and let it go. And and then the seed's going to sit out there, and it's already a little living being, but, you know, it's going to grow more outside of the plant. I I never knew that about spores. I always kind of, I thought spores were just like black dust. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, black dust that makes more of that. Yeah and, yeah, and you don't want to breathe it in if you can help it because it can make you real sick. <laughs> and, well, and something that I found was interesting is that the spores are actually both male and female, but at the same time they need to have they need to meet with another spore in order to make a new plant or new. Whatever it is, right? Maybe a, a mushroom or a fungus. They also reproduce by spores, but I think their spores are, are slightly different um, right. in, in structure. But there was, it was interesting to me that they they had both male and female. Um, whereas when you start to get to the seed plants, the pollen is the male and the egg is the female, and then when they join, they make a seed. So it, it's differentiated from something that's an, a hermaphrodite to something that is now. Um, Single sexed, I guess. Even though, well, it gets, I guess, more complicated because you can have plants that have male and female flowers, but the male parts only produce male parts, and the female parts only produce female parts. So then, these these all get divided into one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight groups. And the first two groups are spore plants without a vascular system and spore plants with a vascular system. Right. So yeah, they then, they start by having um, the reproductive strategy, and then the the transport, the cellular transport strategy. So spores are reproductive organs, and the vascular system is the ability to actually move fluids and other uh, minerals and sugars and stuff throughout the plant more effectively. So uh, I marked off like these really interesting. I, I don't know. I just found things was like ooh shiny. And I, so the simplest land plants are those that reproduce with spores and have no vascular circulatory system. These plants are limited in size because they lack the internal structure to transport water and nutrients. These plants are separated into their own division called the bryophyta meaning the moss division. Simple mosses like peat moss, sphagnum, and liverworts are included in this division and are not within the scope of this book. Sphagnum and other mosses are typically highly acidic and antibiotic. The bodies of people that have drowned in peat bogs in the past have been almost perfectly preserved by the acidic quality. Sphagnum moss has often been used to dress wounds 
with better results than ordinary sterilized pads. Yeah, which is phenomenal. Like that, that's one of the things I really like about this is that he goes into how you can use it, right? <laughs> right. Oh, right yeah. Off the bat. yeah. And and why it works. Exactly. And um and and like you know by the way they're all kind of together, so um I guess it's important to be able to tell the difference between moss and and this was this was a horribly embarrassing moment that I had is that um I don't know for years I've been <clears throat> I mean even as a kid <clears throat> when we had the green goop in our pond at my granddad's house then. Everybody referred to the green goop as moss. There's moss in the pond. And then as I became something of a pond authority, then then people still, their question is, is my pond is full of moss. How do I get rid of the moss that's in my pond? And I know it's not really moss. It's actually algae. Mm-hmm. And and yet, you know, so it was, uh, what, four years ago or so that, um, uh, you know, Sep's in town and um, the conversation came about moss or whatever, you know, stuff growing in ponds that you don't want. And so I asked, well, you know, what about the moss? And then um, so it went through the translator and that apparently the German word for moss is moss. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I... And so, Voss is moss? Uh, yeah, I was yeah. like, uh, so he's like, being confused, what moss? We're talking about a pond. There's no moss in a pond. What, are you, what is this crazy talk? So I kind of feel like up to this point in time, Sep and I had gotten to be awesome buds. You know, it's like there's me and Sep and there's these other people there. And, and it's like, you know, so we are like best buddies. And then the day I asked that question, I dropped to a being at the level of a commoner. <laughs> and it's like, because uh, I referred to it as moss instead of algae. Because then, then I, I started to realize, what, you know, he's like, moss, there's no moss. And it's like, oh, that's algae, algae. Oh, algae, yeah, yeah, of course, algae, yeah. Oh, so embarrassing. Did, oh. did, did he give you the uh, the slap to the face? I, I did not receive a slap to the face, but you can kind of see that I... I uh, I got downgraded from from being Mr. Awesome Permaculture to some common putts, <laughs> all in the space of about thirty seconds. With the grimace and the stink eye. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's like there was. I think there was some eye rolling that might have happened too. Yeah. Uh, this guy is a moron. <laughs> and so, um, I think it took a couple of days uh, until I, I gained back uh, good graces or whatever. Um, but <clears throat> so, so something um, just to bring us back to the book, where my version is different than yours, is that by the time of this publication, mosses and liverworts and hornworts have now been separated into three different divisions, and that's something that's constantly going on uh, in kind of the science of taxonomy. Is that as we're getting more information from genetics in particular, uh, we're refining the classifications of these things and, and separating them out a bit. Oh, oh my. Yeah, because mine, um, on on this page, I'm looking on page nine, we've got um, spore plants without a vascular system, and it's mosses and liverworts. Right, and... The update in mind, it says, historically, they were grouped into a single mosses and liverworts division of the plant kingdom. However, 
since the plants branched off from one another so long ago in the fossil record, they are too genetically distinct to be lumped together. So they are now classified in three separate divisions. Mosses, hornworts, and liverworts. Oh my! All right, but but is it? St- I mean, basically, what he says in this one is is that the, you know this is the only time we're going to mention these guys in this book. Yeah, he sticks to that, and they are spore plants without a vascular system. All right, all right. So then, then he goes into spore plants with a vascular system. Right. And and then he's got um, it's the referred to as the fern division. Is it the yeah? It's the fern division, right? Well, and it, by mine, it's also three divisions. <laughs> So I see club moss, horsetail, and polypody fern. Yep. So, yeah, that's what we have here is vascular spore plants. Our club mosses is one division, horsetails is one division, and ferns are one division. Okay. All right. So, um, and our first forests were composed of these with horsetails that grew over 100 feet tall. Yeah, that would be intense to see that. Spectacular, yeah. It just it yeah. blows my mind so to think about. One, one of the, that must be one of the varieties that, uh, part of the 99.9% that aren't around anymore. I would guess so. I've never it's seen like, more than about a five or six foot tall horsetail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would that would be, uh, that'd probably be thick at the base, I think. Yeah, I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so, it, makes, uh, it makes me understand how uh, things like you know, potentially dinosaurs could have existed because they're just these huge, pr- predominantly herbaceous plants to eat. True. True. A big old dinosaur could just mosey on up and be chomping on that thing for um, half the day. <laughs> yeah. Brontosaurus? Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is real or if it's just right out of the Flintstones. <laughs> <laughs> yes, most of my education came from cartoons. Hey. That that's what our generation was raised on. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The Flintstones taught us that people did live with dinosaurs. That's right. <laughs> and that the garbage disposals were made out of some kind of animal that loved to eat everything. Like a pig. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah, we could use that, I think, still as a pretty good uh, reference. But lived in your cupboard under the sink. It would need to be a small pig. <laughs> it could work. It could happen. That's right. <laughs> In the Flintstones, it totally did. Uh, that that documentary about the Flintstones. Yeah, that's one of those things where when you're teaching uh, youngsters like kindergarten, and you send them home with a free garbage disposal pig for them to put under their sink. For <laughs> okay, uh, it goes on to plants with seeds, and uh, there's the naked seed division. Which sounds erotic, but it turns out to be probably erotic only to certain plants. It's plant porn, naked seeds. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but it turns out to be the, the conifers. Primarily, yes. Yeah, primarily. Okay, so what would be something that's a naked seed that's not a conifer? Well, there's the ginkgo biloba tree is one that oh. a lot of people are probably familiar with. And then okay. there are also cycads, which are primarily a tropical group of plants. All right. And they look kind of like palms. I actually have a difficult time telling them apart from a distance because they, they have a similar type of uh, leaf shape and things like that. But apparently they're very different when you look at their reproductive organs. So then there's flowering plants with seeds enclosed in an ovary. 
And so then this is where we're getting into stuff that um, is going to be more about being pretty and uh, also more about, um, uh, like, like it's uh, a more protected seed. Right. So for the naked seed, it's it's a little exposed, right? It becomes exposed, but then with the flowering plants, it's more protected. Definitely. And, and naked seeds are wind-pollinated. All the gymnosperms is what they're they're called, and they're wind pollinated. Uh, so we're starting to see kind of how this trajectory is developed through time, through coevolution with mammals and movement of plants from the you know the shoreline to up along rivers and then out into drier areas. So things are going you know from in the naked seeds that are wind pollinated, and the seeds are exposed for a little bit, but the pollen it says now is encased in a tough coat to resist drying. So they're now trying to, to deal with the terrestrial environment. And uh, the shapes of the pollen and the cones are matched so that the the pollen is actually caught in the, the wind currents by the cone, and it's only the specific type of pollen, it says here, which I thought was really, really quite phenomenal. It says, uh, let's see... The shape of the cones causes air currents to swirl around them to help catch this pollen. The shape of the pollen and the shape of the cones are aerodynamically matched to each other, so each species captures its own pollen. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty damn cool. Yeah, that's pretty damn cool. It's phenomenal. And, and I kind of see it as that like uh, edge effect management. Is now like the plants are managing for the effects of drying and, and wind pollination, some of these other types of edges and, and mechanisms that they're optimizing. So then, it, okay, so then we're moving into the flowering plants, which are either um, wind pollinated or uh, other pollinated, critter pollinated, either uh, you know insects or, or certain animals. Right. Usually, there's there's something else involved or or it's wind pollinated so like uh in fact one one bit i marked off here is you might be surprised that grass and many other non-showy plants are considered flowers but they do produce true stamens and pistils and they develop their seeds in an enclosed ovary they have merely adapted to wind pollination and lack the need for the showy petals to attract insects so, corn is a grass, and grass is a grass, and uh, apparently they reproduce entirely through wind, which makes sense. Um, and then uh, the the flowers, the blossoms that we see that um, some plants have that are so perty, that's all for like, you know, trying to do that birds and the bees things. Hey, baby! Hey, baby! Yeah, come and get <laughs> come <on>. me. <laughs> Got some nectar for you. That kind of thing. Definitely. And, 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 oh, you're here. Put some of this this pollen on you there. <laughs> and the, the, it seems like they ha- they definitely offer a a good reward system with the nectar. And, and some of them, some flowers are you know very very well adapted to this, like orchids. And um, I, I also like thistles, where when the insects land on them in order to get to the nectar they have to kind of go deep into the flowering they get kind of caught by parts of the flower and they have to wriggle free to make sure they really get coated in pollen and shake off the other pollen that they have 
so that the flowers have, have really developed some sophisticated mechanisms of making sure those insects hang out for long enough and do their little dance in there. So now, on on for mine, I, I got page fourteen is a, a chart of sorts, and it's it's kind of breaking down all of what we've covered so far, and it, and it says, okay, the animal kingdom's over there, the fungus kingdom is here, and then it's like here's the plant kingdom, which of course this book is going to be about, and it looks like a little bit more than three quarters is going to be. Um, well, I guess this is the you know, yeah three quarters of it is going to be the flowering plants division more than three quarters, which includes grasses, flowers, broadleaf trees. Right, and then something that looks like it's a a, a pretty pretty good sized sliver, probably I'm going to guess eighteen percent is the naked seed division. It says pine cedars, yew, ephedra. Yeah, and then the ginkgo and the cycads. So then there's like three tiny slices, which each might make up like 4%. And so the first tiny slice is the fern division, which now is probably expanded on yours. Right, yeah. Horsetails and club mosses also. And then the next one is the moss and liverworts division, which is probably even further divided on yours. Right. Now we have mosses and liverworts in separate divisions, but within the same non-vascular spore plants section. And the last one that's on mine is the algae division, single-celled plants. And that's not on mine. Mine's better. Neener, neener. (laughs) Why is algae not in your plant thing? You know, I think algae have been reclassified primarily to these um, photosynthetic bacteria, like the blue-green algae. So then it might be, like maybe it has its own kingdom now. Yeah, and then some they put into the protist kingdom. Uh, It says on mine, on page 12... uh, Eukaryotic cells, which are cells which have a nucleus and specialized organelles, like mitochondria, for example, um, are in the protist kingdom. And these are mostly single-celled organisms, but they also include multi-celled life forms like seaweed, which is algae. Wow. Cool. So then it moves on uh, to, uh, it says monocotyledons and dicotyledons, which is kind of weird for me because I've, uh, in my vocabulary, which came from reading gardening books ages ago and then the uh, Master Gardener training, then um, my, my vocabulary has the word monocots, dicots, and we also have this other word, cotyledons. And so the idea of like having this new hybrid word is like I'm I'm struggling with it. Uh, so it's like monocot and dicot are just uh, shortened from monocotyledon and dicotyledon because they're easier to say and remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then it's like when I go and I talk to somebody I don't know from Austria who doesn't speak any English, and I say monocot, is he going to know what I'm talking about? Uh, you might say uh, one seed leaf plant. Yeah, but just, in Austrian and German? Well, then you're talking to a translator. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But part of what I think I'm gaining from doing this is is that suddenly I have a, a, a vocabulary 
with Sepp Holzer. Right. So, so you, you could use monocotyledonae. Oh, okay. All right. Right, because that's right. that's actually the uh, the flowering plants. Um, I could I could try to remember this monocotyledon dicotyledon thing, but okay. So so now we're at the so, class. That's at the class level of classification. But yeah, but, but we need to we need to be able to talk. Okay, so what is this? so for me in the past monocot and dicot. That's always been about like when you. Uh, I mean, the way I think about it is you put the seed in the ground, and what pops out of the ground? Is it like a single little spike that comes out of the ground, in which case that's a monocot? That's going to be corn and grass. Um, like lilies, onions, asparagus, those sorts of things. Or is it going to be a dicot, in which case what pops out of the ground has two little tiny leaves on it? Right. And then... The thing is, is that when the plant gets a little bit bigger, when a dicot, in fact, I don't even use this this next thing. I don't even use this next word for the monocots, only for the dicots. And for the dicots, when it gets even a little bit bigger, it puts out two more leaves. And so those those two new leaves, so you've got four leaves total, the second two leaves are referred to as the true leaves. And those first two leaves are going to go away soon, and those are called the cotyledons. Right, the seed leaves. So that's been my vocabulary in the past. And now I'm, I'm, I'm getting the impression that w- the words that I had in the past were like um, abbreviations for bigger words. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and they're, anyway. they're the colloquial words. People rarely say monocotyledon. They just say monocots. Okay. All right, that's good to know because that's monocot is what I'm used to yep. now. Been using it for a long time. Uh, here's an interesting note: most monocot plants have leaves with parallel veins, like grass, while most dicot plants have net-veined leaves. And then I kind of thought, wow, so plantain would be a monocot. I never knew that because I never looked at a plantain growing from seed. And then and then I found this part. Even those dicots that initially appear to have parallel venation, meaning veins, like plantain. Oh, look, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got the word plantago. Hey, that's pretty a cool word. If I'm going to have, uh, you know, some kind of scientific name or Latin name, plantago does sound pretty nice. has a nice ring to it. It does. Plant- actually have a smaller net-like pattern in between the larger veins. There are always exceptions, so if you're uncertain, then look at other features of the plant to be sure. So, I, I only thought that plantain was a grass for about 30 seconds. <laughs> but it was and an so, exciting revelation, nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, it's like, whoa, I never thought plantain is a grass. And, oh, it totally isn't. <laughs> yeah, or like dogwoods look like they have parallel veins, and so do ceanothus, uh, and, and several other plants. And dicots initially look like they have parallel veins. So they're they are the exceptions to the rule. But they, and he's saying that if you look at it with a hand lens or a microscope, you'll probably see those parallel veins branch off into net-like patterns. Yeah. Okay. And then there, in the, the little picture that goes on that page, there's a note on the picture that I thought was really interesting. Uh, dicot class, um, two seed leaves, 
So there, there you are. You're saying seed leaves, and I've never heard them referred to as seed leaves before, but that totally makes sense. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I've always called them cotyledons. And a lot of times they actually are the seed, right? Like in beans and sunflowers and things like that, you see it come out, and it's actually the seed that's just opened up. Right, right. Um, netted veins, tap roots. Usually. So, okay, there's exceptions to, like, all sorts of things. Right. But as a general thing, I guess I guess what they're saying is is that monocots don't have taproots. Pretty much. Are there monocots that have taproots? Like, are there exceptions? I don't know of any, um, but that doesn't mean there aren't. But I, I don't and, think so. Like, I don't, I'm pretty sure palm trees do not have taproots. So I'd never, I never thought of that. Now, um, uh, bananas, there are they a grass? They are. Wow! Because I know that I remember I, I once had a book when I was a kid called "Bananas Are Not Trees." Yeah. And no, they grow on a they grow on a stalk. Right. I mean, if you if you ever cut one open, it's soft and herbaceous, and it's just all herbaceous tissue. The whole interior, there's no woody matter there at all. Huh? Yeah, I've never, I've, I've never um, been to the jungle, so um, I, I don't remember encountering a banana plant complete with bananas. So um, I haven't made that connection. But yeah, I do remember that that it's a, <clears throat> it grows on a stalk, and of course, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, any stalk is probably a monocot. Like, is there a stalk that's a dicot? Um, not that I can think of off the top of my head. You're going to have the there. Flower stalks, you know. For for example, mullein would I think would be one where you think of the the stalk coming up where the flowers are. That's pretty stalk like, but it's got the big broad leaves at the bottom. True. So it's, just, it's I think important to differentiate between but the flower think, stalk and then just a would, general stalk. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a stalk. I wouldn't call the plant a stalk. Plant. Right. Is it a plant? But you know, you can, you can refer to this part of the plant is the stalk, but it's not, yeah. No, I, like corn's a stalk. Right. You know, corn's but stock. all right. Yeah. So I, I, I'm just going to say I don't know. I, I'm but unfamiliar it, with any stalk-based dicot plants. But, but this is amazing. This is, as a general rule of thumb, dicot plants have taproots. So that's, that's kind of the thing that was rather profound to me. Is that you know most? I guess you could say most dicots, as a general rule of thumb, dicots are going to have a taproot. I just had never thought of it being that universal before. And then then you have a nice simple rule of thumb. For example, if you're going to plant something on your pond wall, um, plant monocots because they don't have taproots. So grasses are great. Bananas might be an option if you're in, you know, the subtropics or tropics. Bamboo is always a good one because it's a big grass, but it's really pretty and it grows tall. can actually shade your pond. But you wouldn't want to plant any sort of tree, you know, like a mulberry tree, for example, would be a bad idea. Um, but see, usually when I'm thinking of like a pond dam, then I'm not planting a tree, not because of my concern about a taproot, but more because of a concern of like, like if I planted a tree on the outside side of the dam as opposed to the inside side where the water is, then a tree root 
might go through the dam to get to the pond. Yeah, in, in particular the taproot. But see, a taproot's going to. I mean, a, a taproot's going to generally go straight down. I mean, there'll be some variations, but for the most part, straight down. So the taproot's going to not head for the pond, which mm-hmm. is going to be a horizontal thing. That could be. And then what happens when the plant falls over if it's taprooted? That would be my other main concern, is when it falls over and it's taprooted, even if the horizontal root didn't make it to the pond, it's going to potentially pull out some of that base of that dam wall. It's, just, it's a bad idea, period. <laughs> I think when most taprooted trees fall over, they break at the taproot. They break off the taproot. That could be, too, yeah. Yeah. So, but I I always kind of think that like you know a tree is going to send a root out a, um, a lateral root, a horizontal root, into the pond, and then the water is going to start trickling along the root to the outside. Mm-hmm. So now you've got a leak in your pond. That's why I always think you know don't ever plant trees. You just you don't want to plant anything that has a big enough root that water can start following along the root to get out. Right. And that. that's one good reason why in your key, <clears throat> you'll, or in your dam, you'll, you'll do a key, because roots just generally don't want to go in there at all. It's just it's just too packed. It's too solid. There's nothing there. It's dry. It's kind of semi-impermeable. It's like not worth the effort. And and so yeah, that all right. Um, in general, that, you can plant monocots on your dam walls and not dicots. I think is what, what I was getting at as a rule of thumb. Yeah, I think that's a that's not it's it's a, an interesting thing. I'd never thought of it that way, but that is an interesting thought. Yeah. All right, that's all I've got uh, for this part that we agreed to read up to. Um, and uh, do you have anything else? Um. Well, I think I'd like to just finish what we're going over, where uh, dicots usually have complex branching patterns and floral parts in fours and fives, and monocots uh, usually have simple branching patterns or, you know, stalks, I guess we would be calling them, and floral parts mostly in threes. So you get, you know, some quick tools to differentiate them besides just the seed leaf thing, which you might not see unless you see it actually sprouting. Right. Right. Well, and the parallel veins trick. Right. Unless it's plantain. <laughs> <laughs> there's going to be a few others, yeah. you know. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, yeah. And there's ways to, like, you know, solve that one. So, all right. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about botany, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. <laughs>